practice the recent salute in the Canadian House of Commons of a Ukrainian who served on the Nazi side tell us about the direction of our policies toward Ukraine? How has NATO jeopardized any ability to direct foreign policy democratically? Is President Zelensky a heroic figure or a tool of U.S. intelligence? How could recent visits to Russia help shape the perspectives of Canadians and Americans devoted to the destruction of so-called misinformed, war-happy citizens of the country? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we continue with an update on the situation in Ukraine, where the war is headed, and what it says about Canada's participation in it. In our first half hour, we will be talking to peace activist Tamara Lorenz about how Canada's foreign policy has been shaped by its involvement in NATO and about her visit to Russia late last year. In our second half hour, military analyst and commentator Scott Ritter returns to the show to share his thoughts about the looming demise of the war, the creation of the Ukraine Reconstructive Bank, and also about his trip to Russia in late April, early May. On this week's program, the war is ending and Canada louds a Nazi as a Ukrainian hero. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 29th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. After settlers from Europe in the last five centuries colonized the land of indigenous people and committed acts of genocide and colonialism, it is time to redress the imbalance between the peoples and make reparations a responsibility moving forward. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Another point of the Republican pushback against the Biden administration's reckless funding plan for Ukraine is the consistently made promise by Trump to quickly find a resolution to end the conflict if he is elected for another term, with the latest made on September 25th at a rally in South Carolina. Furthermore, the former president declared that he would strive to avoid a third world war, stressing that the current situation is very close to a global conflict. A new Washington Post-ABC poll shows Joe Biden trailing Trump by 10 percentage points. This is inconvenient news for the establishment media, who responded aggressively to the poll, saying it was flawed. For his part, Larry Sabato, the director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, called the decision to release the poll results, quote, ridiculous, unquote. 
That comes from the article. Latest poll shows Trump up 10 points over Biden for 2024 election by Ahmed Adel, posted September 28th, originally published on Infobricks. Amply documented, Zvoboda, together with the, quote, right sector, unquote, or Pravi sector, were actively involved in the 2014 Euromaidan massacre. The founders of Ukraine's Svoboda party are Ole Tianyebok and Andriy Parubi. Both individuals have played a role in shaping the Kiev regime. Deputy Speaker and Speaker Andriy Parubi of the Verkhovna Rada, or the Ukrainian parliament, from 2016 to 2019 was received by Trudeau at the House of Commons in February 2016. Perubi also met up with members of Trudeau's cabinet, including Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland. That comes from the three-part report under the headline, Ukraine, has PM Trudeau succumbed to Nazi ideology? By Hindustan Times, Sky News and Professor Michelle Chosodovsky posted September 27th, originally published in Hindustan Times, Sky News and Global Research. If Dr. Scolier were to speak up and raise concerns about COVID-19 mRNA vaccines and turbo cancer, he would be denounced by the media that currently adore him. He would be denounced by the politicians and the entire Australian medical establishment that is currently giving him the red carpet treatment. His doctor colleagues would turn their back on him and they would almost certainly leave him to die. That includes his surgeon colleagues, his oncology colleagues, and his longtime cancer research collaborators. The only reason Dr. Scolier is being treated well by the medical establishment is because he is helping them advance a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical fraud failed mRNA vaccines. In this case, Moderna's mRNA cancer vaccines. That comes from the article, 56-year-old Australian Dr. Richard Scolier was diagnosed with worst possible brain turbo cancer. He's now receiving world's first mRNA cancer vaccine to treat mRNA turbo cancer by Dr. William Mackis, posted September 27th, originally published on COVID Intel. The illustration showed a, quote, new Middle East, unquote, wherein the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip appeared to be part of Israel. An earlier erroneous map shown by Netanyahu also included the Palestinian territories as part of Israel in 1948. Israel did not control the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, or the Gaza Strip following its violent creation in 1948 on 80% of historic Palestine. It illegally occupied them in 1967 and continues to do so in what is known as the longest occupation in modern history. The inclusion of Palestinian lands and sometimes land belonging to Syria and Lebanon in Israeli maps is common among believers of the concept of Eretz Yisrael, 
Greater Israel, a key part of ultra-nationalist Zionism that claims all of these lands belong to a Zionist state. That comes from the article, Israel, Saudi Arabia. Netanyahu promotes normalization with new map erasing Palestine. Posted September 27th, originally published on Middle East Eye. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. A week ago, a Ukrainian war veteran from World War II was honored in the Canadian House of Commons while Ukrainian President Zelensky was entertained. This veteran, it turns out, served in the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS, a unit created by the Nazis from Ukrainian volunteers in 1943 as part of its occupation of the USSR. Speaker Anthony Rota has stepped down from his role as Speaker and Prime Minister Trudeau has expressed apologies. However, the damage has been done. As it stands at this time, Polish authorities are calling for the extradition of this man. One entertainer, Rod Schneider, suddenly cancelled his trip to Canada on account of the salute, and most other nations of the world look in extreme sadness at the bizarre spectacle of gentle Canada suddenly locking hands with Nazis. Such are the extremes of their hatred of Russia. Meanwhile, the war has just kept going. Ukrainians and Russians continue to die by the hundreds of thousands now. Yet this stubborn legend persists that Canada is a nation of peacekeepers, not warmongers. But our next guest will tell you that this country is as determined a hawk as, as anyone else. So, so what's left for people who want to see that situation change? Tamara Lawrence is a member of Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, a PhD candidate with the Balsillie School of International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University, and a fellow with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. And she's also a rising star in, in Canada among peace groups, I, I believe, uh, in the country, as she is raising awareness about the unjust aspects of, of the war in Ukraine and, and speaking out as fearlessly as anyone else. So I thought we'd bring her back to comment on where Ukraine and Canadian foreign policy is at the current time. It's good to have you back tomorrow, Lawrence. So welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Maybe I should start with the story that's dominating the news right now. Uh, your thoughts about the disclosure of a Ukraine soldier being on the side of the Nazis, being tagged by the Speaker of the House uh, as a, a, a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, fighting, quote, for Ukrainian independence against the Russians, unquote. Well, it's very disappointing, but it's not surprising, and it's to be expected. So on Friday, when President Zelensky was in Parliament, our Speaker of the House uh, honoured a Ukrainian a Canadian of a veteran who who served with the uh, Waffen SS Galicia Division during the Second World War. He he served with the Nazis. He trained in Germany, and 
every single member of parliament, everyone in the House of Commons stood up and cheered as he, as, uh, as this um, uh, Nazi was 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 honored and it's absolutely disgraceful but i i think that it is um part of a broader project of historical revisionism that's happening in this country and it really represents a creeping fascism that i see it's something that i also witnessed when i was touring uh eastern europe last year and went through latvia poland and romania and i think canadians should be very concerned uh, about what took place. Uh, as well, Canadians should know that what we have been doing in Ukraine uh, with the Canadian military uh, since 2015, we've had a, a, a training mission called Operation Unifier in Ukraine. And there's evidence that I have through access to information documents that the Canadian military knew that it was arming and training neo-Nazi forces in Ukraine. This is uh, members of Azov, uh, C-14, uh, right sector. These are neo-Nazi militias that have been integrated into the Ukrainian military. And... Um, uh, uh, you know, we've been we've been supporting them for the past uh, eight years. And um, it, this is another aspect to, to this uh, to this this problem of neo-Nazism that that we see as well. Last year, there was a vote that came out in the U.N. General Assembly asking countries uh, to denounce uh, Nazism and Canada refused to uh, support that uh, that vote. So uh, we need to to have deep introspection about where we're going in this country and what we're doing. And um, Canadians should be outraged. And as well, on Friday, not only should we be um, you know, condemning this glorification of a Nazi in the House of Parliament, but Canadians should also be denouncing the fact that we have, um, the federal government has announced another $650 million to prolong this war in Ukraine. So Canadians are spending more public funds for uh, weapons, for, you know, this terrible uh, war that we see raging in that country. Canadians have spent in the past 18 months over $9 billion for a war. We haven't spent $1 for peace. Um, so uh, there are a lot of problems uh, that were revealed on Friday, and Canadians really need to pause and, um, and think about where we are as a country and the direction that we're going. And I would like to also add that um, there is there is a misperception among Canadians that we are a peacekeeping country. It's something that you mentioned in your opening remarks. Well, Canadians need to be aware of the fact that according to the latest UN peacekeeping statistics, Canada is ranked 68th in the world for peacekeeping. We have a mere 58 soldiers that are wearing the UN blue helmet. We have uh, a thousand Canadian soldiers in Latvia right now on the borders of Russia, leading a NATO battle group and an electronic warfare unit. So um, uh, Canadian has become a highly militarized uh, country and our posture in the world is one of war making. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I just wanted to, to maybe, like you could mention briefly, I mean, you say that uh, th that we're aligning with the Nazi elements in uh, right now. I mean, how, uh, I mean, because that's something that's called, considered disinformation, uh, not just by politicians, but even the media, that this is something that the, the Russians are trying to cook up. I mean, could you maybe just give us a couple of examples that solidify this, you know, the, 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 Nazis, the, the Nazification, if you will, of, of the Ukrainian army? Well, we know from, for instance, from reporting that uh, a military analyst and journalist, uh, David Pugliesi with the Ottawa Citizens has, has done, uh, showing that the Canadian military has been training neo-Nazi militias in Ukraine. Um, there are pictures of, Can of Canadian soldiers standing on, alongside the Azov uh, soldiers. And we know from access to information documents, I have copies of these documents, that Azov is a neo-Nazi uh, force in Ukraine. And uh, we have not only been training them, but we have been uh, supplying them with weapons. So since 2017, Global Affairs Canada put Ukraine on the approved list for arms exports. And we have been flooding uh, Ukraine for the past um, six years with millions of dollars of assault weapons, of ammunition, and other military equipment. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we need to have a, uh, like a truth and reconciliation process uh, about what Canada is doing in this war, as well as a way to end the war. We need to be honest about um, what Canada and other NATO countries have been doing in Ukraine, because as people like Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, Dr. John Mearsheimer, Jacques Baud, a senior Swiss military officer who has written extensively about this war, as they have said and as they have published, what is happening in Ukraine is really a NATO proxy war against Russia. Well, you're talking about uh, NATO now. I'm wanting to talk about how Canadian foreign policy, uh, as you learned about it both in theory and I, I suppose your own personal life, <laughs> what role did NATO play in shaping this policy? I mean, it seems as if as, as time goes on, we seem to be more and more hawkish. So, you know, explain how, how NATO, uh, or, or you can disagree if you like, but how NATO is actually dragging us into this, this more wartime mentality. Well, it has been going on for 25 years, and Canadians just need to uh, look back at uh, the history since Canada was involved in the NATO bombing of the former Yugoslavia in 1999 that destabilized the government and broke up the country. And uh, that was an illegal war. That was an, an illegal operation. And uh, Canada uh, bombed civilian infrastructures. We bombed and killed civilians. And there was never any accountability. And that illegal NATO operation in the former Yugoslavia paved the way for NATO's operation and war and brutal occupation in Afghanistan for 20 years. <clears throat> Canada led uh, a, um, a combat mission in, um, in Kandahar in the south of uh, Afghanistan. We were there for 12 years. Uh, again, we totally destroyed the country. 
and um, and then Canada, uh, Canada led the NATO bombing of Libya in 2011 that again destroyed civilian infrastructure, killed civilians, and uh, and then Canada participated in the NATO bombing operations of Syria and Iraq from 2014 to 2016, and then we supplied the fuel for the U.S.-led coalition airstrikes in those two countries until 2019, and um, so Canadians need to to consider this war in Ukraine in the broader context of what Canada has been doing with NATO for the past 25 years. And so not only have we been participating in these really um, deadly and uh, murderous operations, but Canada has been helping to militarize Eastern Europe with NATO for the past 25 years. So we have been moving in uh, NATO battle groups and um, and different military in- installations like um, uh, like missile defense systems into Eastern Europe that has been just antagonizing and provoking Russia. And it, it, it defies, you know, commitments that we made after the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s to not move NATO towards Russia's border. But we have been doing that um, and acting so aggressively with NATO in other countries that um, uh, that this has really contributed to the war in Ukraine. And I want to share an important resource with people. In, ni- in 2019, the preeminent expert for U.S.-Russia relations, uh, Dr. Stephen F. Cohen, wrote a really important book called War with Ukraine, question mark, from uh, Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. And this was the last book that he published before he died. And he wrote it as a warning. He saw that that the United States and NATO were creating the conditions in Ukraine for the past 10 years that has led to this war that we see right now. Well, when we're talking about Canadian foreign policy, I mean, there's also the, the tempting question to ask, with, with Canadian embassies that you set abroad, is there anything suspicious about their behavior that uh, far from aligning with the, the will of Canadians actually aligns with uh, uh, a very vicious and ultimately illegal uh, activity? Well, so Canada, of course, has an embassy in Kiev. It has an embassy in Riga, Latvia. And I have recently filed access to information requests to find out how uh, the Canadian government is spending its local funding initiative accounts. So the the Canadian officials through the embassies are able to provide funding um, to local groups. And I am convinced that Canada is is, uh, contributing to, to... destabilization efforts, uh, in, uh, uh, Russophobic uh, efforts in Eastern Europe, um, and and complementing the work of the CIA front group, the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, you know, the National Endowment for Democracy, Democracy had spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in Ukraine, um, you know, over the past 20 years to turn the public um, against Russia and, um, you know, towards 
the United States and NATO and the European Union. Uh, there were polls that were taken in the early 2000s that showed that Ukrainians were opposed to joining NATO. They were opposed to joining uh, the European Union. They wanted a trilateral type of agreement, something that they could they could, you know, they could be, uh, uh, they could, you know, trade and have economic ties with the European Union as well as maintaining it with Russia. But the the current EU leadership and the United States, you know, wanted to pull Ukraine away from Russia, uh, you know, closer to the, the European Union and to 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 NATO. And in order to uh, to turn the Ukrainian public. Um, uh, it, it required a, 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 a massive propaganda campaign, and I am convinced that Canada uh, contrib- has been contributing to it. Um, and so, you know, I, I will await my uh, returns on access to information requests to see how the Canadian embassies have been operating in, in Eastern Europe. But um, I don't trust at all what the Canadian government has been, has been doing with NATO and other countries. Okay, I mean, we've got about five minutes left. I, I wanted to touch base with you on your visit to Russia because that took place, I guess, in, in December, I think, of last year. I mean, what did you learn about that? Well, what did you see? What did you learn? And, and how did it grasp in yourself uh, a sense so, of uh, what, how, how yeah. the peace can be achieved? So I uh, went to uh, Russia once I finished being at the climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. I realized that I would be able to get a direct flight from Cairo to Moscow. And I really wanted to go to Russia because there's a travel ban by the federal government uh, for people to go to Russia. And Canadians should know that our our, uh, federal government refused to have engaged in any diplomacy with Russia before Russia invaded on uh, on February 24th of last year, Canada refused to participate in, in diplomacy. And I wanted to do what the federal government should be doing, engaged in, in a form of diplomacy. So civilian diplomacy, I went with the motivation of, of people-to-people diplomacy, of peace building. I, I went uh, to Moscow and to St. Petersburg for my first time. I uh, was a little bit anxious before I, I went. I was expecting the the country to be, um, uh, you know, architectured maybe to be austere and 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 kind of gray Soviet style. I thought the people might be unfriendly because I can't speak any Russian. I, I know very little about the country, but um, I was absolutely astounded. I was so impressed. The people were so kind and helpful. The cities are absolutely beautiful and modern. I mean, these are world-class cities. I reached out and I had an opportunity to speak at Migimo University, which is the most prestigious uh, university for international relations, and to speak to the students there and to, to hear their okay. perspective on the war. Um, it was amazing. Yeah. Okay, well, we, I guess we have maybe a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, there's a, a global week of action to end the war in Ukraine uh, coming next week. Uh, we, we heard a little bit about it from Glenn Michael Chuck and, uh, and Ken Stone. Um, may I ask, what will you be doing that week? So I will be organizing a rally in Waterloo on uh, Tuesday October 3rd from 5.30 to 6 at the Waterloo Public Square. 
Um, and I will also be hosting a webinar on uh, Sunday, October 8th at 4 p.m. with Jacques Baud, and he is going to be speaking about his new book, Ukraine Between War and Peace. Jacques Baud is a very credible military analyst about this war in Ukraine. I encourage people to come out and support the Week of Action to end the war in Ukraine and to join the webinar. People can find out more if they go to the Canada-wide Peace and Justice Network. The website is peaceandjusticenetwork.ca. Okay. Tomorrow, Lawrence, thank you so much for sharing uh, with us. And uh, I guess we'll all have a chance to participate in our own way in, in this week of peace. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. Tomorrow, Lawrence, a major peace activist, a member of the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace and a PhD candidate. She's uh, reached us from Toronto. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. I would like to welcome back to the stage now a favorite analyst of mine. He's been known to me since 2002 when he was saying emphatically that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's the kind of voice that now people should actually listen to before making a major decision in the field of military combat. Scott Ritter is a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control and the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War and from 1991 to 1998 as a UN weapons inspector. He joins us now to talk about the dynamics of the enterprise in Ukraine and a little about his trip to Russia earlier this year. Scott, it's great to have you back on the Global Research News Hour. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. The great counteroffensive that we were talking about by the Ukrainians amounted to minor gains and, and a spectacular loss of life. Uh, Ukraine deaths, uh, I believe, soar into the hundreds of thousands now. And, and Russians have suffered too, of course, but uh, uh, and NATO countries are, are starting to run out of resources to send a diminishing army. Now, I have to ask from your vantage point, as a military expert, what is your analysis of the war as it stands right now? I mean, can you give us an update? Well, I mean, what we're looking at is the strategic defeat of the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, they, I mean, even minor gains is um, is far too optimistic because a, a gain has to indicate some sort of progression to a, an objective. The objective of the counteroffensive was never to capture a village uh, that had a pre-war population of 400. I'm referring to the village of Robotino. That's in Zaporizhia. That has been at the center of the uh, of this counteroffensive uh, since its, its start back in uh, early June. Um, Robotino was supposed to be the point of entry by Ukraine into the, into the Russian defense network. Uh, they should have captured or cleared Robotino on day two of the operation. Um, they should have been at Tokmak, um, which is the intermediate objective, uh, a, a town some uh, 20 kilometers beyond uh, the front line. Um, and then they should have been at Melitopol, 
the major city, which was the ultimate um, you know, goal of this offensive, uh, capturing Melitopol, severing the land bridge between Russia and Crimea, and putting the Russians in an untenable situation, thereby hoping that Russia would come to the negotiating table. Um, and so unless you take Melitopol and sever the land bridge, uh, you can't speak of a gain um, because the gain has to be seen in the context of the totality. Uh, the, the Ukrainians have successfully taken Robotino, but only after they deployed the last three brigades of the 12 brigades they allocated for the task of capturing Melitopol. Um, and having seized Robotino, they found that they had seized nothing more than a death trap because Robotino was in the low ground between a, um, a series of high grounds continued to be occupied by the Russians. And when you have the high ground, you have, uh, you know, fire, uh, a superior fire position. Uh, and the, the Ukrainian um, counteroffensive has stalled. Um, they have no more reserves. They committed their last reserves. Uh, the, the Russians, meanwhile, um, continue to hold the, uh, the the totality of their defensive line. Um, they have hundreds of thousands of troops that have yet to be committed into this fighting. And, um, you know, their defense industry is churning out uh, war materiel at record numbers with no indication of not being able to sustain this level of production. Meanwhile, Ukraine's defense industry is non-existent. They're totally dependent upon uh, military production coming from the West, from Europe, from the United States. Um, the, the the Western nations have already indicated they have uh, pretty much exhausted uh, their um, their relevant stockpiles of equipment uh, to to send to Ukraine. They are struggling to get new production online, um, and this means that Ukraine will not be able to replenish the losses that they have suffered. Um, this this means as this war goes on and as the you know, the meat grinder grinds away, uh, gaps will be appearing in uh, Ukrainian uh, the defense line and defense capacity, gaps that cannot be replenished, and these gaps will be further exploited by the Russians, creating more gaps. And this is a recipe for collapse, and I think that's the direction that we're heading on the Ukrainian front um, toward the ultimate collapse of the Ukrainian military's ability to maintain some sort of cohesive um, front uh, against the Russians. Mm. Well, with this uh, collapse appearing to you know, signaling you know the the end of the war in in some sense, uh, as it's, it's got ahead somewhere. Um, you've got Zelensky still you know going around. He was in Canada last week, somewhat infamously uh, in in terms of the, uh, the, the the Canadian Parliament. And, and I, I'm wondering, is he still going to be president uh, a year from now or six months from now? I mean, what 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 do you predict will be his fate? With his glorious war, as you said, coming crashing down. Well, I mean, we, we need to understand that Zelensky is not Winston Churchill. He is a um, he is a tool of Western intelligence, of Western um, governments who used him to manipulate Ukraine into serving as a proxy of NATO in a larger conflict against Russia. Uh, he is an actor who has been. Uh, ably reading scripts handed to him by his CIA and MI6 masters. Um, and he had a successful first season, we could say. Uh, the show was well-written, um, and the, the the product was seen by the viewership as being worthy of continued support. Uh, but the second season has not been so successful. The second season, I guess we could have called it the, the, the season of the counteroffensive. And the counteroffensive 
has failed egregiously. And now the West is stuck with an actor whose script no longer motivates. So uh, when he went on this most recent trip, um, you know, starting off by traveling to the United Nations where he spoke before the General Assembly, um, as he left Europe, uh, we saw Poland begin to turn its back on Ukraine. And this is a very, very problematic uh, issue for Ukraine. Poland is one of the larger supporters of Ukraine. Uh, Poland serves as a conduit, a physical conduit of uh, munitions being sent to Ukraine. Polish um, uh, personnel have fought by the tens of thousands in Ukraine on the side of the Ukrainian army as uh, mercenaries. Uh, Poland has turned over significant numbers of tanks, artillery pieces, infantry fighting vehicles. Um, and and now Poland has said it will no longer participate in that, that uh, they will no longer send um, military equipment to Ukraine, that uh, this military equipment, um, especially the newer equipment that's being produced in Poland and being purchased abroad, will be used exclusively for the Polish military. Um, moreover, Poland has said that it will not participate in the Black Sea grain deal, meaning that Poland will not allow Ukraine to dump its grain on the Polish um you know, e economy. Uh, Poland is more concerned about their own farmers, their own agriculture, how to bring those crops to market, how to earn money for these farmers so they can pay taxes so that Poland can do the things Poland needs to do. By allowing Ukrainian grain into the Polish market, they severely undercut uh, the, 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 the Polish farmer in terms of pricing. Plus, the quality is garbage. Much of this grain has been sitting in silos for years and has rotted and is fermented. And, um, you know, so it's it's sub it's sub quality uh, grain, uh, but this is problematic for Ukraine because if it can't bring the grain to market, it can't generate money that it desperately needs. And so, having Poland turned its back on Zelensky and on Ukraine was basically the precursor for what turned out to be a disastrous trip. He went to the United Nations General Assembly, spoke before the global community to a largely empty. Um, you know, an empty conference room. Um, you know, the people that flocked to uh, to hear him in the past no longer care with what he says because he's irrelevant. He's recognized as having zero relevance to this issue. He's he's a puppet. Uh, the, the 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 if you if you want to negotiate with a puppet, understand that you have to negotiate with the puppet handler. And so people are starting to say, we're going to talk with the United States and Europe. We're not going to talk with Ukraine because. Ukraine doesn't do anything on its own volition. So a disastrous. Yeah. He went to Washington, D.C., got snubbed uh, by Congress. So uh, the last time he was in Washington, D.C., he was able to speak to a joint session. The United States Congress had Nancy Pelosi infamously hold up a Ukrainian flag signed by so-called defenders of Bakhmut, many of whom are affiliated with right wing, um, you know, uh, political parties. Um he you know, got her to say Slava Ukraina, which is uh, the war cry of the Banderist movement, which Zelensky has been clucking for. Um, he went to the Pentagon and uh, was told, uh, you know, you're going to have to basically get some victories on the battlefield before we can go back to Congress and get more money. Um, and then with his tail between his legs, he flew off to Canada. Here he met with Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, in the Canadian Parliament, and got several rousing, you know, ovations from the Parliament as he delivered his presentation. But uh, near the end of his presentation, the uh, the 
the, the, the camera panned to an individual in the audience who stood up to receive the applause of Zelensky and others, uh, including the totality of the Canadian Parliament. Uh, this was a 98-year-old uh, former soldier with the 12th Galatian SS or Waffen SS Division, uh, one of you know a, a Nazi formation, and everybody who served in it, you know, had to be a Nazi, taken an oath to serve Nazi Germany. Um, the 14th Galatian Division, you know, had a reputation well earned during the war of killing innocent civilians, killing Jewish uh, women children, the elder men, killing Poles, killing Belarusians, killing Russians themselves. Uh, a, 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 a very, very um, criminally laced organization. In 1945, when the war ended, the Galatian Division was captured intact by the British Army, I believe. And instead of being turned over to the Soviets uh, for retribution, well-deserved, Instead, they uh, they kept them under British custody, turned them into what they called displaced, displaced persons uh, who were interned in several camps throughout Germany. And eventually, the Galatian Division was dispatched from Germany to Canada um, in mass, uh, the totality where they were absorbed by the Western Ukrainian um, diaspora there in uh, in Ukraine. Um, this, this gentleman was singled out. He stood up. And he received a standing ovation from Parliament. Um, Parliament literally applauded a Nazi. Yeah. Now, the uh, the the Speaker of um, of the Parliament has quit. Uh, he apologized. He puts the blame on him. But I will tell you this: I have spoken before the Canadian Parliament before. It was a Foreign Relations Committee, uh, but I had to be thoroughly vetted by the Canadian Royal Mounted Police and by the Canadian Intelligence Services before I was allowed to. Um, enter and uh, have connection with these parliamentarians. Um, you, wow. the, the, the security for uh, Zelensky and for Trudeau is even greater. Uh, there's not a single person in the parliament that wasn't known by name to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Canadian Intelligence Services. Uh, they had to have their names submitted in ahead, uh, ahead of time to be vetted. Uh, so the Canadian Security Services knew exactly who this guy was and what his background was. Moreover, it appears that Trudeau and Zelensky had arranged to meet this guy ahead of time, which means that's a further level of clearance, meaning that uh, Trudeau and his immediate handlers knew exactly who he was, and yet he met with him. Zelensky knew who he was, and yet they met with him. So to say that this was an accident where only the Speaker of the House is to blame, but the Speaker of the Parliament, that this was his mistake. He resigned, uh, taking a bullet for the boss. But the fact of the matter is Trudeau knew about it. He had to know about it. So did Zelensky. Their security, so did the entire Parliament. When they stood up to applaud a Nazi, a literal Nazi, um, they claimed now it was an accident. There was nothing accidental about it. They knew who they were applauding when they applauded him. They're just not being honest about it today. This underscores uh, the degree to which um, Ukrainian nationalists with, um, you know, very, very odious backgrounds, people who fought alongside Nazi Germany as part of the Waffen-SS, who committed uh, horrific crimes while they served Nazi Germany. Um, they are alive and they are willing. Uh, they are alive and they are living in Canada, in Ukraine, here in the United States. Uh, we've just turned a blind eye to them. Mm. Wow, that's that's amazing. I thank you for bringing that to our attention. 
Um, you know, I, I just just to switch which gears again, um, as you have articulated, uh, there, there's really no hope of, of Ukraine pulling off a victory in this uh, battle. So so something else has to happen. And if, if they're going to win, either NATO troops can be convinced to join Ukrainians on the front lines or God help us, a nuclear war could be triggered or, or some sort of truce could be signed. I, I think that sums up all the available choices. But well, what is your guess as to which direction this U.S.-NATO actually will go? Well, let me just say right off the bat that this is going to be unconditional Russian victory. That's the only way this war ends, unless NATO intervenes, and then this war ends with a general nuclear exchange and it terminates all life on the planet as we know it. Um, there will be no truce. There will be no ceasefire. There will be no frozen conflict. Uh, there will be no forever war. This war is going to end. Um, you know, I can't give you an exact date and time, but it will end, and it will end with Ukraine's unconditional surrender to Russia, or it will end with the absolute destruction of Ukraine. When um, U.S. Senator uh, Lindsey Graham said that this conflict will be fought to the last Ukrainian, he was serious uh, because Americans don't care about Ukraine or Ukrainians. We only care about Ukrainians sacrificing their lives um, you know, in, in furtherance of an American goal of bringing harm, of pain, of hurt to Russia. Um, so we need to understand that's the reality. This will not end any other way, either total Russian victory or general nuclear war. Now, to avoid a general nuclear war, the West is going to have to accept the reality that Russia is going to win, and they're going to win on Russian terms. And so the question is, can um, NATO, the United States, the collective West, um, accept a Russian victory? And um, what will they do uh, in the face of a Ru Russian victory? Will they you know, abandon Ukraine, but then regroup and seek to confront Russia elsewhere? Or will they abandon Ukraine um, and recognize that the best way to get out of this situation is to learn to peacefully coexist with Russia and begin negotiations with Russia about a European security framework that would be acceptable both to Europe and to Russia. These are the only options. There's literally the only, you know, in order to have a ceasefire, a truce, or some sort of negotiated settlement, you have to have all parties talking about this and ultimately be in agreement. Russia is not in agreement. They've made it clear there will be no ceasefire. So all the options you laid out appeared just to be laid out for the domestic political benefit of the the nations that are willing to talk about it at this stage of the game, but it will have no impact on ultimately how this war ends. This war ends when Russia decides this war ends in yeah. no other way. Yeah, I, I just appreciate your take on, on um, another aspect of the war, and that's uh, the, the development of the Ukraine Reconstruction Bank. It's set up with JP Morgan and uh, BlackRock, you know, two of the, the biggest uh, financial uh, entities in the world and and it's it's propped up as the source to allow private investors to rebuild Ukraine after it has already suffered from its rejection by Russia and and, and now this war but it's probably more intended at making big money for the war contractors and uh, um I mean I I I I'm, I'm thinking of like the, the what what Halliburton did in Iraq um I I I mean what are your thoughts I guess I mean is it as benevolent as its PR says it is, or is this like uh, the, the bank and, and the involvement of JP Morgan and BlackRock an example of the saying 
uh, by Smedley Butler that war is a racket. Well, war is a racket. BlackRock is a uh, is a racketeer. Um, they're not there to help Ukraine. They're there to make money. Um, and you know their their bet is as this war goes on, um, you know Ukrainian assets that right now are worth a lot of money will diminish in value and. Of course, BlackRock wants to be there to buy them at the lowest possible value and then reap the rewards through uh, predatory reconstruction. But the good news for Ukraine is that BlackRock will never have an opportunity to do any of this um, because Ukraine is going to lose the war. And Russia will make null and void any arrangement that BlackRock has signed. The Zelensky government will no longer exist when this war is done. And the Ukrainian government that will replace it will not be inclined to honor any agreement made with BlackRock. So it's it's totally irrelevant. Uh, nothing that BlackRock um, thinks or hopes will happen uh, from this relationship with the Ukrainian government will ever reach fruition, because in order to reach fruition, you need conflict termination on terms that allow uh, not only for the Zelensky government to stay in power, but for the Zelensky government in Ukraine to be in a superior position over Russia, one where these contractual relationships will be enforceable. Um, that just isn't going to happen. The Russians will never enforce this, will never will never agree to this, and neither will any new Ukrainian government. So I'm surprised at BlackRock for, for doing this because it's a very poor investment and they're not going to be getting a good return on their uh, on their dollar. Okay, I, I would also like to, to before we run out of time, uh, I, I heard that you spent time in Russia a few months ago, uh, I was would appreciate if you could just describe your experiences there, where you traveled, who you talked to, and uh, what was your impression generally of, of the country this late into the war? Well, I went to Russia um, in late April. I stayed there for 26 days, returned back to the United States on May 25th. I visited uh, 12 cities during that time. Um, the purpose of the visit was um, a book tour. I just had my book, Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, translated into Russian and published by a Russian uh, publishing house. And so I um, I was doing a book tour, but uh, in the process of doing the book tour, I, was, uh, I had the opportunity to see Russia, to meet Russians, and to get a firsthand view at what the reality of Russia was. My primary objective wasn't to do a... Um, an assessment you know, on where Russia was vis-a-vis -vis the war, um, but rather to learn more about the Russian people, their history, their culture, the Russian soul, and to capture this information and bring it back here to the United States in an effort to better educate and inform my fellow citizens about the reality of Russia to try and create a vaccine, so to speak, to the disease of Russophobia that has gripped the United States. Um, but, you know, it, it, when you when you do that, you you get a feel for the reality. And right now, Russia is uh, impacted by the reality of this conflict. It's everywhere you go, you see the Russian people rallying around their government, deeply patriotic people, um, you know, supporting defense industries, supporting the troops, supporting uh, the Putin government. Uh, I was there for Victory Day. May 9th is Victory Day, one of the biggest holidays in Russia, uh, celebrating the victory of the alliance over Nazi Germany. Um, and what I can say is that, you know, I, I've been involved with a lot of Fourth of July parades here in the United States. I was a volunteer firefighter for many years. And 
course, on the 4th of July, we like to parade up and down our town and receive the applause of the admiring citizens and, and all that. But, you know, basically, 4th of July comes and 4th of July goes. Victory Day is forever, meaning that the Russians never lose sight of the sacrifices made by their ancestors who came before them. 27 million Soviet citizens, many of them Russians, but not exclusively so, perished in that conflict. And uh, the Russian people uh, feel indebted to them. So as they prepare for Victory Day, it is a um, it, it, it has a deeper meaning to them. It resonates with uh, the average Russian citizen. Victory Day itself is um, is an extremely somber day. Yes, there's a parade. Yes, there's fireworks. But it's also a day that people go to the graves, that people lay flowers and monuments. Uh, in years past, the Russians have um, done a parade, uh, sort of a spontaneous parade by Russians. It's called the Immortal Regiment. It's become a formal thing. Um, and millions of Russians fill the streets uh, in, a, in a parade where they hold up the photograph of a relative um, you know, from World War II, somebody who served, and it's now expanded to anybody who served. And um, this is a hugely emotional moment uh, where people are actively participating in something, uh, showing appreciation for their relatives, telling their relatives that the current generation has not forgotten their sacrifices and will never betray uh, the cause, which is Mother Russia, that people died for. Um, and and, and it, it, this, this extends beyond May 9th and the days afterwards, it still resonated, it, it, it and I, if I went to Russia today, it would still be resonating. People would still be talking about the importance because this is part of their DNA, this patriotic desire to serve their nation. It's a real deal. And I witnessed that. And, um, you know, and it's imperative to tell the American people that this is not propaganda. This is not Russian propaganda. This is genuine. This is real. This is visceral. This is who the Russian people are. And um, I'd also report back that Russia... Um, is not being negatively impacted by the economic sanctions, that uh, the Russian economy was thriving. Um, without exception, every local economy seemed to be doing well. There was new construction everywhere. Russia is a clean nation. Uh, Russia is a well-functioning nation. Uh, Russia is a nation that appears to have compassion for its its, its collective population. I didn't see um, homeless camping out under bridges or you know, in parks or under bushes. I didn't see uh, drunks and drug addicts crowding the streets, uh, you know, invading parks. Um, the, the country was full of a vibrant people who were very proud of who they are. This wasn't a propaganda exercise. This was a Russian reality. And I would just encourage anybody who could travel to Russia to see it for yourself. And what you'll do is you'll come back with a deep appreciation of Russia, its culture, its history, its people, but also a recognition that everything the Western governments and Western media have told you about Russia is a lie. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that Russia is perfect, that it doesn't have problems. It does. It's not perfect. I'm not going to pretend that everything that Russia does on the world stage is admirable and, and beyond critique. No, some of it is as selfish as what America does. And, you know, every nation should be open to be criticized by its own people. Um, but, when you when you do the you know the 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 balance sheet between the the sins of Russia and you weigh you know look at and compare it with the sins of America and the sins of Europe, you realize that Russia has very few sins, whereas Europe and the United States have a tremendous amount of sins. 
Um, you know, Russia's on the right side of history. They're they're trying to be good uh, global community members. They don't want to dominate the world. They just want to be in the world as equals in a world that respects Russia as much as Russia respects them. I guess in the the one minute, uh, we've got one minute left in this uh, broadcast. I mean, is there anything you could say? I mean, next week is the Global Day of Action to End the War in Ukraine, uh, October 1st, October 8th. I was wondering if anything from uh, your knowledge of, of Russia and, and their people, uh, what, what you could say that would maybe emphasize in people's minds that, uh, yes, peace is on the way uh, if, if we do things right. I mean, what is your what would you say to those uh, activists? Uh, I would tell the activists that the, the the best path to peace is the total Russian victory, that you need to stop arming the Ukrainians. You need to stop funding the Ukrainians. Uh, this war is not going to end with some sort of uh, negotiated settlement that uh, where you know everybody feels good about this. Ukraine has lost this war. And the reason why Ukraine lost this war is because the West pushed it into this conflict and then continued to pump Ukraine full of weapons and money to sustain this war. Uh, Russia is not going to end this war without achieving the objectives that it set out to achieve, achieve, and therefore the world needs to respect this. And if you if you stop sending them the weapons and the money that uh, is being used by proxy to, and to ensure that future generations of Ukrainians uh, will grow up in dislocated environment, uh, poor education, no stability. Uh, a nightmare. If you care for Ukraine, pray for a Russian victory. Scott Ritter, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. For having me. Uh, we've been speaking to Scott Ritter, a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and a major geopolitical analyst. Next week, I will be passing the mic over to another individual who will conduct an interview examining the way the failure of the treaties between treaty commissioners and indigenous chiefs was not a result of misunderstandings, but the result of deliberate deception on the part of the Canadian government. Join us in seven days. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.